Hi, I'm Jim, and this is Amanda, and it's our distinct privilege to introduce you our good friend, Ben Disney. A couple words about Ben. Ben is got great integrity, he's humble, he's altruistic. Ben, I can't read your writing. Let me jump in here. I have known Ben Disney for over 25 years and have had the honor and privilege of being a part of a new church start with him in 1991. He was always the first one to show up and the last one to leave. He has a gift of seeing the talents and good in others and challenging them to use those gifts to further the kingdom of God. He leads with a gentle grace, both from the pulpit and by being the hands and feet of Christ in everything he does. Also, his hair, it hasn't changed in 25 years, still perfectly combed. I really don't even know how he does it. He served as a pastor at First Fort Worth, Dublin, Alliance, Central and Waco, and most recently, Arbor Lawn United Methodist Church in Fort Worth. I had both the great pleasure and pain of serving at a church within four miles of where Ben was serving in Fort Worth. He was an incredible resource and friend. That was the good part. He lured away some of my church members with his great preaching. That was the bad part. The bishop ended up talking to him about that, by which I mean the bishop ended up giving him a preaching award. I can probably sum up my feelings for Ben by saying there is no one I can count on more. When times were good and when times were difficult, he was always there for me and my family. It is now our great pleasure to introduce our new district superintendent and Amanda and my great friend, the Right Reverend Ben Disney. Thank you. Good morning, Mansfield. Believe it or not, those are some of my dearest friends that have said those kinds of things too. It's so good to be with you. I hope you have some level of understanding of how important this church is to not only our conference, but to our denomination. You've been on a 25, 30 year run that's been unprecedented. David Alexander, the staff, Jim Connor, Amanda Hardiman, sharing the entire group of folks. And I'm privileged now to serve on the cabinet and the executive team with uh, Mike Ramsdale, so I know your history. Watched it, celebrated it. There are a lot of churches that are struggling, and they look to a church like Mansfield to be a teaching congregation because you do some of the best work in ministry, and I hope you understand that because we all do throughout the conference. It's good to be with you. We're going to begin, if we could, just let's have a prayer as we begin. Gracious and holy God, whatever distractions we have, whatever diversions that may present themselves, help us to set them aside, to listen intently and clearly that we might hear a still, small voice speaking inside of us. And God, when we hear it and recognize that it comes from you, follow it wherever it will lead us. Whatever brought us through the doors this day, God, speak to us a good word. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. I want to read to you a passage from Matthew. Let me set the stage. Matthew, it contains most of the parables that Jesus talked about. So he's teaching, using this vehicle to explain the gospel. Parables, as we all know, are little vignettes, glimpses into the kingdom of God. And he's beginning to tell all the people these parables, and his own disciples take him off to the side and ask, out of curiosity, why do you teach them in parables? And here is what we're going to read from Matthew's gospel. Here's his reply, because they haven't received the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but you have. For those who have will receive more, and they will have more than enough. But as for those who don't have, even the little they have, will be taken away from them. This is why I speak to the crowds in parables. Although they see, they don't really see. And although they hear, they don't really hear or understand. 
Continue. There you go. What Isaiah prophesied has become completely true for them. You will hear to be sure, but never understand. And you will certainly see, but never recognize what you are seeing. And finally this, for their senses have become calloused and they become hard of hearing. They've shut their eyes so that they won't see with their eyes or hear with their ears or understand with their minds and change their hearts and lives that I may heal them. It's an extraordinary passage. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, people would explain to me parables of these simple little stories. Jesus took these complex, complicated ideas and honed them down to a story that made sense to any one of us. Even a child could understand, and the stories are simple. Jesus would talk about a farmer who would go out and sow seeds, scatter them anywhere and everywhere in the hopes that they would take root and grow. Talk about a woman who lost a coin who turned her house upside down in order to find it. He would tell a story about a little sheep that somehow wandered away and the shepherd drops everything, leaves 99 of them behind, searches everywhere until he finds it and brings it back home. I was told over and over again, parables of the way in which Jesus took complicated ideas and made sense out of them, except now, here's this passage. He's asked, why do you speak in parables? And essentially what he says is, I speak in parables so they will not understand goes against everything we were led to believe. What do you mean, will not understand? Jesus, why would you want people not to understand what you're saying? I teach them in parables, and he quotes Isaiah. I don't want them to understand. But we were led to believe it's so easy. You just hear a parable. You hear a story. It's simple. It's like riding a bike. Let me show you how easy it is to ride a bike. people say it's just like riding a bike, meaning it's really easy and you can't forget how to do it, right? But I did something. I did something that damaged my mind. It happened on the streets of Amsterdam, and, and I got really scared, honestly. I, I can't ride a bike like you can anymore. Before I show you the video of what happened, I, I need to tell you the backstory. Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill, and I was really proud of it. Everything changed, though, when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses, and they like to play jokes on the engineers. He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle, and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike, ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Destin Salmon. First attempt riding the bicycle. All right. So, the faster I go, the better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. Therefore, knowledge is not understanding. Look, I know what you're probably thinking. Dustin's probably just an uncoordinated engineer and can't do it, but that's not the case at all. The algorithm that's associated with riding a bike in your brain is just that complicated. Think about it. Downwards force on the pedals, leaning your whole body, pulling and pushing the handlebars, gyroscopic precession in the wheels. Every single force is part of this algorithm, and if you change any one part, it affects the entire control system. I do not make definitive statements that often, but I'm telling you right now, you 
cannot ride this bicycle. You might think you can, but you can't. I know this because I'm often asked to speak at universities and conferences and I take the bike with me. It's always the same. People think they're going to try some trick or they're just going to power through it. It doesn't work. Your brain cannot handle this. For instance, this guy. I offered him $200 just to ride this bike 10 feet across the stage. Everybody thought he could do it. No, 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 no. No, you didn't understand. You didn't understand. So, this way. Okay. All right, I'm sick. All right, so, uh, whatever you're in. Quick, quick. No, no, you have to keep your feet on. Dude, all right, here we go. Feet on the pedal. Go. <laughs> Go right off. <laughs> Just keep your feet on the pedal. Pedal for one. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Alright, one more time, one more time. Once you have a rigid way of thinking in your head, sometimes you cannot change that, even if you want to. So here's what I did. It was a personal challenge. I stayed out here in this driveway and I practiced about five minutes every day. My neighbors made fun of me. I had many wrecks, but after eight months, this happened. One day I couldn't ride the bike and the next day I could. It was like I could feel some kind of pathway in my brain that was now unlocked. It was really weird though. It's like there's this trail in my brain, but if I wasn't paying close enough attention to it, my brain would easily lose that neural path and jump back onto the old road it was more familiar with. Any small distractions at all, like a cell phone ringing in my pocket, would instantly throw my brain back to the old control algorithm and I would wreck. But at least I could ride it. My son is the closest person to me genetically and he's been riding a normal bike for three years. That's over half his life. I wanted to know how long it would take him to learn how to ride a backwards bike, so I told him if he learned how to ride a backwards bike, he could go with me to Australia and meet a real astronaut. Are you gonna give up? No. Go ahead. This is how it starts. Look at this. This is such a big deal. Get up, you got it. Did you see his brain get it? So he, in, how many weeks have we been doing this? Two weeks? In two weeks, he did something that took me eight months to do. I realize I lost to most of you because you were trying to figure out how you can ride that bike as well. <laughs> Unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying is, I teach them in parables so they will not understand, meaning I don't want them to get it too easily, too quickly. It's deep, it's hard. I want them to wrestle with it, struggle with it, ask questions, dive into it, lean into it. Whatever you want to say about a parable, it's not simple, it's deeply complex. In fact, we talk a little bit about a parable. There's one that's only about four lines long, weeds and wheat. We think we know exactly what it means. And the story goes, as Jesus tells, it's not about agriculture, it's about human life. There's a man who owns this rich, fertile soil, and he instructs his servants to go out and sow seeds of good wheat in the midst of the fertile soil. They do just that, unbeknownst to them. And that's all it says, doesn't explain anymore. An adversary comes and sows seeds of weeds in the midst of the good wheat. It's a simple story. If you're in seminary, 
they're going to tell you the early church is struggling with these people who are trying to take the gospel in a different direction. They're neighbors, brothers, sister, family members, and it seems like such a mess. And how do you extricate, get rid of people you love that you share a community with or even a family with? And that's what he's talking about, weeds and weed. And the whole story is about Finally, the servant's coming to the master, and clearly the master is God saying, what should we do? Because if we try to pull up the weeds, we're going to destroy the wheat. And the master, God says, let it go. Wait till the harvest. And the harvest comes, we'll take the good wheat, take it, hold it, treasure it, store it, and the weeds will just discard. You read a passage like that, and you think it's about seminary training and early church. And then you get a little older, and you think, really describes the messiness of our lives. None of us are all good. None of us are all bad. We're this mixture of things that are inside of us that become so much a part of us we can't really extricate or cut out part of it. It's just kind of who we are. And how do we live with the tension and the mess? And, and God says, let it go at some point. God will do what we can't do for ourselves. And then you get even older and you begin to sit by the bedside of people and the diagnosis comes and the doctor says, there's nothing more we can do. Cancer has riddled the body. And you're looking and thinking, how can such a good and beautiful spirit in this insidious disease take over their body? Cancerous cells alongside healthy cells, weeds, wheat all together. And you hear it in a more profound way. God says, let it go. The harvest is death. I will take this person, leave behind you everything good, everything that is painful you let go of. Celebrate and remember all that is good. In a sense, I think we gravitated in American Christianity we feel like we're compelled to give answers over and over again. People come, the questions, we need to give answers. And so we construct some of our ministry, and some of it is really good and worthwhile. I'm not criticizing, but we'll say things like, here are the 10 things that you need to do to be a better husband, a better wife, better father, better mother. If you want to be a community leader, here are five essential things that you need. And so we sort of disseminate all this information and give out answers as if those are the things that people are looking for. I remember a lady who came to me years ago, and she had this dilemma, and she said, I, I need you to tell me what to do. And I said, well, let's talk. And she said, well, my husband has been offered this prestigious job in Chicago. It's essential to his career. If he says no, he may never be asked again for this kind of an opportunity. But our kids love this area. I've got a mother that's nearby. She's got some medical issues, and I've just really wrestled with it, and I've struggled with it. And I let her sort of tell everything about it and put it out on the table. And finally, she just said, I just need to know what to do. Tell me what to do. What, what am I supposed to do? And I just looked at her and I went, I don't know. And she had that look of a person who first realizes, maybe for the first time, why pastoral care is free, okay? <laughs> because it's not my job to tell her exactly what to do. It's to listen to her because if I tell her what to do and it goes wrong, she'll blame me. She didn't own it. She needs to wrestle with it, ask the hard questions. Whatever she decides to do needs to be in the best interest of everything. Put it down on the table. I'll help you articulate it, help you see things that you're not able to see, but ultimately you have to make that decision. And by the way, the last time I checked, God's still at work in Chicago. So if you decide to go, it's still going to be okay. There's not a terrible decision to be made. It's just which one is better for you and your family. So look at the way in which Jesus changes people's lives. We think you go to Jesus, you find an answer. Here's the reality. Go back to the gospel. Do you know how many questions Jesus asks in the gospel? People have actually counted. 307 questions. He poses to people, who do you say that I am? Do you love me? What do you want me to do for you? 307 questions. How many questions were asked of Jesus by other people? How many people came up to Jesus with a question to ask in the entire gospels? 
183, 183 questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Question after question, 183 questions. So just stop there for a moment and say, Jesus asks twice as many questions as people ask of Jesus. Pretty telling. Second part, let me let you guess or let you guess. 183 questions were asked of Jesus. How many of those did he give a direct answer to? Somebody asked him a question, he gave a direct answer. Out of 183 questions, three. Three direct answers. Most often, Jesus would reframe, redirect. You're not even asking the right question. I hear the question, but that's really not the most important question. You're talking to me about a legal dispute between a brother and a brother. No, here's the real question. How are you going to reconcile with your brother? Or people would ask him questions like Pilate interrogating. He would remain silent, would not answer directly because there was no need, because truth does not always need to speak out. It stands on its own over and against the powers of evil. 183 questions, only three direct answers. What he was trying to do is, I want you to think about this. Think of it in a new way. You're not looking at the essential part of the real issue behind the words that you think are so important. Unless you become like a child, you cannot see it. You just will miss it. I saw a study the other day, and I had to go back because I didn't really believe it, but it's been confirmed by other studies. So if you're a parent and you're wondering why you're so exhausted, here's the answer. Little children ask on average 300 questions per day, okay? If you're the parent of a four-year-old girl, it spikes. There's no higher group. 384 questions a day by a four-year-old girl. By the time you're a nine-year-old boy, you're down to about 144 questions. What does it say? The older we get, fewer questions we ask. We're not inquisitive. We don't dig deep. We just accept things as they are. Or we're beginning to sort of form this entrenched foundation of what we think we know, and it's harder and harder for us to seek out something new, to learn something new over and over again. And really, through the course of our lives, you and I both know that. It's harder the older you get to learn. Try to learn a new language at a later age. It's so hard to do. To know what you don't know. Sixteen-year-old in Germany about five years ago solved what they thought was an unsolvable math problem. They said he was a genius. His explanation is, nobody ever told me I couldn't. I just thought it was a problem I could solve. And he did it. This idea that your mind is not so rigid. The whole idea of this bike is you've learned all your life a certain way to ride a bike. And now everything has changed. It's opposite. Right is left. Left is right. And how hard that is to get out of your mind that kind of rigidity. We call it confirmation bias. And in fact, it's the idea that what we've learned throughout the course of our lives, we just reinforce it. It's why people don't change for the most part. It's why the world doesn't seem to change. We're already biased, and now we go out and seek out confirmation of our own bias. Meaning, if I do not like you, if I hate another person, I'm going to find evidence that will support the fact that I don't like you or I hate you. If I love somebody, I'm going to seek out the evidence that's going to support, I really like this person, I love this person. You know, you can hate somebody so much you'll never see an ounce of good in them. And you can love somebody so much you'll never see an imperfection. It's this idea that it's this confirmation. We see what we see, we already know what we know, and then we just find evidence that's going to support it. That's why we never change, because we're so locked in. I have a friend of mine, Don Matheson. He's a retired doctor in Fort Worth now. Grew up with Dan Jenkins. If some of you have a certain stage of life know Dan Jenkins. Uh, used to write for Sports Illustrated, author of a ton of books. They all sort of grew up together in some of that recollection. Golf was central to that whole narrative. 
Don Matheson loved golf from day one. I grew up in Tennessee, and this past summer I was talking to him about Augusta National and the Masters Tournament. I said, Don, did you ever play that? And he goes, let me tell you a story. So when I was 17 years old, I didn't know anything, but I knew I wanted to play Augusta National. That was the benchmark of any kind of dream you could ever hope if you were a golfer. He said, I was 17 years old, had a tank of gas, didn't know anything. And I just drove down to, to Georgia. I wanted to see if I could just get on and play around round of golf at Augusta National. And he said, I was so naive, but I walked up to the clubhouse and I just said, I'd love to play around. And they looked at me like, you're just an idiot. You can't just walk off the street. He said, unless you're a member, you can't play. Well, if a member invites me, can I play? Well, good luck with that, son. He walks out, goes to the parking lot, and there's a guy pulling out his golf clubs out of the trunk. And he said, you know, I just drove down from Tennessee. I've always loved it. I've heard about this course. And I just, I, is there any way I could play? And the guy said, believe it or not, we had a foursome, but one of them dropped out. This is your lucky day. You want to play with us? You can do it. And he just can't believe it's good luck. I mean, this is every dream, a 17-year-old kid who loves golf. I mean, he just cannot believe that he's actually there. And they tee off and they play, and he just absorbs it, takes it in, and he's just, just beyond himself. And by the third hole, he's standing at the tee box, and he says, I cannot believe I'm playing Augusta National. And the guy said, sorry, son, this is Augusta Country Club. Augusta National is about five miles down the road. <laughs> We're just so entrenched. Jesus said, that's our blind spot. We got this confirmation bias. We see what we want to see, and we can't see anything else, which means according to Jesus, that's why the world hardly ever changes. That's why it's so rare to have somebody be transformed, even though that's our mission, to be truly transformed. We just simply accept the idea, this is the way life works. That's the way it always was, the way it'll always be. So go back to Matthew's gospel, because he's going to radically turn everything upside down. You've seen it, heard it, but just go back and look at it again. Jesus is not talking about tweaking the edges or smoothing off some of the, no, not the rough edges of your life. He's actually talking about changing you from the inside out, changing all of us. Whenever he has a coded word or a line that says, you've, you've heard it said before, but I say to you, boy, brace yourself because he's about to dismantle everything you thought you knew about the world. You've heard it said all your life, but I say to you, you've heard it said all your life, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and that's the way the world works. But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. That's not a tweak. That is a radical turning upside down everything you thought you knew. Eye for an eye for tooth for tooth is how the world has always operated. You hurt me, I'll come back on you with equal vengeance, maybe even more. What he says is you got to break the cycles. To break the cycles is not to respond in kind to what was done to you if it's vengeance and anger and violence. No, it's a radical new way to break the cycles of the world that's operated the same way for as long as anybody can remember. You've heard it said before. Somehow, You've got to understand how to break those cycles. 14 triads, and I won't bore you with all that, but it goes on and on. Uh, when somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn it off of your left cheek. We always think, well, that just means be a passive doormat. Be Christian. Be nice. You know, don't respond in violence. It's not what it means. What Jesus is describing to people who live in that culture is you're oppressed by the Romans. You have no power. If a Roman soldier and a person of authority strikes you, there's nothing you can do. It's suicidal. You can't hit them back. You have to sit there and take it. We know that. We accept it. Unfortunately, that's the way the world is at this moment. But Jesus is saying, let me tell you a different way to break that cycle. And the key word is the right cheek. Turn it off your right cheek. If somebody is coming, standing right next to you, face to face, 
And if they're going to strike you on the right cheek, they're going to use their backhand because the predominant culture is to use the right hand and it's designed to humiliate and demean you. They're going to backhand you, slap across the face on your right cheek to make a statement, you're a nobody, I'm somebody, you can't do anything, I can do this all day. You're less than a human being. When Jesus is turning off your left cheek, he's not saying just take more of it. He's saying make a statement because if you turn your cheek so far, they cannot backhand you. All they can do is now open their fist and hit you like an equal, which is saying you can do this because you have power. But what you can't do is take my dignity away. I'm a child of God. You don't get to determine my worthiness or sacredness. God tells me who I am, not you. And you can hit me, but you're going to look me in the eye and treat me like an equal and hit me like someone who is of equal value to you. And he goes on and on, dismantles. You've heard it said before, but I say to you, it's when a Roman soldier says, I'm going to take a backpack, give, or backpack, give it to you, and by law you have to carry it a mile and you do it. Jesus said, carry an extra mile. It's not just to be nice and gracious. It's to take the power differential. It's to say, after you've done your obligation, take it another mile. Roman soldier now knows he's in trouble. Legally, that's all he can make you do. Now you're going, he's chasing you saying, no, 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 drop it. Give it back. I need it back. I'm about to get in trouble. And you just keep going because now you've changed it. I am a child of God. You break these cycles that we're so entrenched in and so embedded in and so hard to let go of. How hard is all of this? It's the hardest thing you and I will ever do. Why? Because we're the biggest obstacle. Biggest mission field that ever existed in this world is in your own heart. You're the problem. I'm the problem. I've already begun to think so deeply, and I'm so entrenched on how I see the world, it's almost impossible to break it. It's like this bicycle. I've grown up with a sense, and everybody's reinforced it, that if I turn right, I go right. If I turn left, I go left. No, now everything is opposite. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is opposite of everything you've ever thought and been told or led to believe And if you want to look for leadership, you turn left when everybody else turns right. You turn right when everybody else turns left because it's the opposite. It's counterintuitive of everything that we thought was the norm in life. I think we're so locked into the way we've always thought. Jesus is the one who comes and asks these questions to elicit from us a different way to look at the world. Do you love me? And if you do, what does that really mean? Do you really want to get well? Well, Jesus, of course, no, no. Do you really want to do what it takes in order to get well? That's the deeper question. And Jesus is a master at getting down to the level of what we need most of all. I see it so often. I've sat by the bedside of folks who have died, and they're just like me. There's a stage in my life where I just want to know why. Why, God? Why would you take this person? Why would this person not be spared? They're so full of life, so full of goodness. And we prayed like we've never prayed before, and we couldn't do anything. The person died. And you can go down this road, and every one of us does at some point to ask why. Why, God, why in the world was this person taken? And I will tell you, I gave up a long time ago on the why question because it never leads you to a good enough answer, or at least not an answer that will satisfy you. Because you'll do gymnastics to try to figure out the why, and it's really not the essential question because we're fixated. God, why did you take this person? And here's a better question. God, why did you give this person? And if you can flip somebody's way of thinking to say, I'm not going to dwell as painful as it is, and it won't take away the pain, and it won't make everything immediately better, but if you ask the deeper question, why was this person given to me? Then you begin to think about the blessings and how grateful you are and the memories that bring a smile to your lips and joy to your heart 
And you'll begin to turn in a way that you haven't been able to and let go of this frustration of trying to answer a question that cannot be answered. We are so locked in to what we have been led to believe, and it's almost impossible. So Jesus is now saying, I'm going to tell you parable stories that you're going to live the rest of your life trying to figure out. They're not easy. They're not superficial. And you won't have them, and you won't understand them quickly or easily. Gordon MacDonald said there's two different kinds of people. There's driven people, and there's called people. Driven people own everything. They're driven to the idea they've got to accumulate, hold on, almost with this doctrine of scarcity. I've got to have it. People are trying to take it from me, so I've got to accumulate everything. I've got to build my own life, my own security, my own peace. And then there are called people. Called people just live with a sense of gratitude. Life is a gift. It was never mine to begin with. When I'm done with it, I'll give what I can to others with a glad and grateful heart. Heibels used to talk about this idea of the difference between people who are religious and people who really follow Jesus. Religious people fixate on a word called do. You need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do more. And you get on this sort of hamster wheel of trying to always do more and be more and accomplish more and ultimately you wonder if it's ever really enough because there's always more to do. People who follow Jesus operate out of the word done. It's already been done for you. God has already given to you. God has already made the first move, initiated. God's already granted you grace. Now you're free to be the person you were always intended to be and to do it without constraints and without guilt and without shame. You are called and you are given the very essence of everything that is good in this world. So when you talk about spiritual growth, it's the opposite of what we normally think about of any growth. If we're going to grow, we've got to do more. Spiritual growth says subtraction is the key, not addition. To do less, pare down, strip away. Let me leave you with a couple of quick stories. From your childhood or whenever it may have happened to you, probably a similar uh, instance. Storm is brewing, it's coming, you hear the weather reports, everybody huddles inside, it's going to be a terrible storm. Suddenly the power goes out in the entire house. Everything is down, nothing's operable. Somebody goes to that drawer that's in every single house, with all the candles, flashlights, batteries, whatever it is, light a few candles, everybody gathers in the same room, and you begin to talk. The light illuminates the people and the faces of those that you love dearly. You're talking, you're laughing, and even though the storm outside is raging, there's a sense of peace and calm. And you realize in a moment, if you're really fully aware that something is happening that you're going to carry with you for the rest of your life. And a couple hours later, Power comes back on, computers reboot, internet connection is back restored again. Everybody goes off to their separate places in the house. And you're left for a moment as you blow out the candles. I wish the lights would stay off a little longer because you see it. Because that exposes what you really always want in this world. And all the noise and confusion, the technology that separates us, it's those moments that we really treasure most of all. And you get a glimpse of that. And you wonder, why couldn't we do that more often? And why don't we do that more than we do now? I went out to California a few years ago, and I heard a person talk and told the story. And I don't know if it's the right word, but it always haunted me. And I'm going to leave this with you, and not to haunt you, but to give you something to think about. He talked about when he was in junior high. They had a take-home test that was passed out and given to him. He wrote the instructions down, and then went home and took the test and you wrote out a little essay and brought it back. And so they did. And he spent a few days putting it all together. Thought he did a good job of it and handed it to the teacher that Friday. The teacher had all the take-home exams, passed them back out. He looked at his first page, 
really nice comments in the margins by the teacher saying, well thought out argument, love the way you constructed this sentence. Paragraph was concise, it was clear, good job. Turn the page, a couple of other compliments about the way in which he helped uh, sort of build his argument and case and how he reflected and did the research. And then he looked down at the bottom of the page. Final grade was an F. He got an F on the paper. He's thinking to himself, there wasn't a red mark, there wasn't a bad, there was, everything was good. I mean, she liked, how do I get an F? So he waits for everybody to leave. And then he walks up to the teacher, has the paper in hand and says, I, I don't understand. She goes, what do you understand? Well, I, you, I got an F and it looked like you liked everything I did. She goes, I loved everything you did. Well, why did I get an F? She said, you did really good. Unfortunately, it was the wrong assignment that you turned in. The story bothers me because I don't want to get to the end of my life and say I did really well on a lot of things. Made a good living, was comfortable. Hope I did some good occasionally to other people. But what if I didn't get the right assignment? What if I didn't really ever catch on to what God wanted me to do, created me to do or be? I don't want to get to the end of my life and realize you did really well, but it was the wrong assignment. So here's the problem. Can't do that on my own. Because I'm so entrenched. I'm the one when Jesus says, you've heard it said all your life, I've bought into it. You and I have bought into the way. This is the way the world works. Nothing's ever going to change. And Jesus comes and says, break the cycle. The gospel is coming. It'll change everything. And the first one it'll change is you. And the only way you do that is to become like a little child, to unlearn things that you thought you knew. To look at another person and get rid of the bias and looking for ways to confirm what you think you already know, but look at them and see what light is inside of them. See the goodness that you've never been able to see before. To be able to open to the world. To be like a child once again. Here's what I love about the video. Did you notice that when he retrained his whole mind, like Romans says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your heart, mind, and soul in Christ Jesus. He finally masters the new bike, which I say is the new kingdom that Jesus is talking about. Did you hear what he says? I can't ride the old way. Once you enter into the kingdom of God, once you get a glimpse, once Jesus gets close to you, you can never go back to the old way of living or to the old world you left behind. May we pray. Good and gracious God, it is so easy to be conformed, to be jaded and cynical. And yet, oh God, there was one who comes to point us in the direction, who pulls back the curtains on a kingdom we never understood even existed. And it's right here, right now, not after we die, but while we're still alive in these moments. God will follow the one who will point us in the direction of a different way to live. And if it means going left when others are going right or right when others are going left, so be it if it leads us back into your arms and back to the kingdom that we long for. And God, if we ever see it, if we ever touch it and it ever touches us, how can we ever go back to the old way? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.